Please listen carefully. G'day. You're listening to City Speak with Greg Van and Stephen Yarwood, a podcast about cities by people who love cities and want you to love your city too. Well, it's great to be back here and um, it's just a really exciting topic. We've decided that um, as two pale, stale male men, we need to understand how cities work in lots of different ways. And I think we'll talk to some young people and we'll talk to some old people. Uh, But the most curious of beasts of all is the opposite sex. And so we really want to discover what uh, women and planning is all about and women and cities are all about. Joining us today on City Speak is uh, Laurel Johnson. Apart from being a long-term standing friend of mine, uh, is one of the uh, prominent uh, social planners in our part of the world and uh, lecturer in the Urban Planning Program at the University of Queensland. Welcome today, Laurel. Thank you, Craig. Lovely to be with you both. So I know you've been researching um, some things on this topic uh, in parts of, I guess, Brisbane and out of parts of Brisbane. Would you like to just give us a bit quick rundown on, on what what you've been doing and what you're learning out of that. Let's take them one at a time. So, yeah, sure, Greg. Um, I've been having some fun working with communities on the edge, what I describe as the edge of a metropolitan area, being those outer suburban areas that sometimes are, we have a blind spot in planning our cities and, and shaping our cities. We forget that there is an edge to our urban and sometimes we don't see it. So we spend a lot of time and attention investing in our inner urban areas and that's quite beautiful and amazing, but there, there can be some neglect of the edge because of that. So I've been working... Um, um, in two parts of our metropolitan area here in Brisbane on the edge and one is with older social housing tenants in an area called Logan which is halfway between the cities of Brisbane and Gold Coast and um, these ladies are um, generally older women and they are would be at risk of homelessness if it wasn't for the, the social housing that they're occupying on behalf of the state. And the research that I undertook was underpinned by this notion of under-occupancy, that they were women who had raised their children in three-bedroom homes, some of them four-bedroom homes, in the suburbs on the edge, and that now they'd aged and um, the housing was no longer fit for purpose. So at least that was what the Department of Housing, their landlord, suspected. And I think you said there's some 150... Um, people that you interviewed? Yeah, we interviewed over 150. Big sample and the biggest that the state's ever undertaken. So quite a significant piece of research. And I guess what one of the findings that surprised me really was trying to tackle this idea of under-occupancy. The department were clearly doing a bedroom count, which was fair enough. And when we imagine a three-bedroom home, we imagine a great big McMansion. But these homes were built in the 60s and 70s when a three-bedroom home was quite a modest offer, around 200 square metres or less. So these are much less. So these are quite small homes. And what I found was going into these um, women's homes that each of the bedrooms was occupied with some sort of activity and some of it um, caring activity. So there was a room for the grandchildren to stay in when they visited and um, for some of these women they were caring for their grandchildren on almost a permanent basis and there was another room for hobby or craft or activity that wasn't just their room but a room for them and their neighbours where they'd come and join together to undertake an activity, some sort of benevolent activity of creativity. So for me, you know, I was really obliged to report back to the department to say I'm not quite sure about this under-occupancy gig, if you're just counting bedrooms and not thinking about floor space and the way it's used, then that could be a flawed approach. 
So this is a group of older women who have found ways of actually, in a setting of relative isolation, found ways of connecting themselves across their communities and with their families, um, using what was sought to be underutilised capacity is actually being used for that purpose. Most definitely. So they are using every corner of that space. Some of it borderline hoarding, I'll admit. <laughs> but um, it was great to see creative and caring and loving activity taking place within these homes, which is where these women spend most of their day. So they're not so socially isolated because they've raised their children in these environments. They've lived in these environments for 30 or 40 years, but the the areas are changing as the cohort, the nature, the demographic within the social housing grouping is changing to high needs people. So some of them were feeling quite threatened about new neighbours and the sort of behaviours around them. So they were feeling unsafe, which is why I guess they invited us into their homes to tell us all about it. But it was an extraordinary experience. And for me, it marries to a next piece of research that I was doing on the edge, um, which was um, the lens there was really looking at transport disadvantage. This is a longitudinal piece of research I've been undertaking for over 13 years in one community that is very much on the edges of metropolitan Brisbane and again a social housing community. Um, it, it has nationally significant indicators of social and economic disadvantage but if you can look past the curtain of all that and go in and talk to people what you find is a, a really coherent community. Again very much dominated by women and older women in volunteer effort to fill the gaps and the holes where there's been planning failure or system failure to deal with them, to give them a decent and fair, a fair share of the city, if you like. And the, the area that I was looking at was transport, as I said, and what I uncovered was that there was a very high proportion in my survey, over 70%, and mostly women were surveyed, who told me that they either often or sometimes give someone else a lift in their, car, in their vehicle. There's a failure of public transport in this particular area of the city for a whole range of reasons, which are all governance-related reasons, but these women um, tend not to have a voice in transport planning and transport network planning. And so really they're coping by reaching out to neighbours and others through kindness and love, if I dare say it, as a researcher, um, to offer each other lifts and give each other the mobility that the system's not delivering. And you had a, system, a, a term, I think, rather than social capital. What was what were you calling it? I'm uh, calling it, and it's my term. Yes. No one's to steal the, this the term. I've copyrighted this term. Yeah. Kindness capital. I think there's nothing wrong with good old-fashioned kindness. And what I saw was, yes, social capital, I'll see that as kind of a utility that can be leveraged, but these women are acting out of kindness. These gestures are kind gestures. And, and, and Laura, when you... Talking about you know women in cities and and just the samples and the places you've been working, overwhelmingly women. You know, is it because it's women that that's that kindness capital is being generated? I mean, what do we take from this in terms of the how cities are treating women and how women are treating their cities? I think that that for me, women are survivors and thrivers in city environments, and it comes from our good socialisation around relationships that we fundamentally base our our world on our relationships, and this is paying off for these women as they age through their kindness capital. They're cashing in with their neighbours and others in their female network, and it does tend to be female. So I, the women, you know, I, I would run public sessions with sixty people, and predominantly women were coming out of their homes to talk about those kinds of urban issues because they matter. They live in the neighbourhood, they work the neighbourhood, they love the neighbourhood, they've raised their kids in the neighbourhood, they have an attachment to place that I don't think is so strong for men. Mm, I have to say, if I was going to make any cheeky gender jokes, all I'd really be able to say is I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you more about that kindness approach, but I do think it is inherent as a gender 
specific thing. You also talked about the outer suburbs, the edge, and you know the ideas of loneliness and isolation and unemployment and disadvantage, and that's that's obviously a really important part of this. But um, maybe you could just sort of elucidate a little bit on on your experiences there. I've, I've worked in the outer suburbs of Metro Adelaide, um, and um, yeah, what, why is that? Why is this a gender issue for the outer suburbs in particular, or, or what was your take on on the experience that women were having in the outer suburbs? My experience was that the outer suburbs are places of affordability and they were, they were places of preferred places for public housing development when we all suburbanised in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So there's a, a range of stock, older public and private housing stock in these areas that's cheap to live in where people have lived for a long time but these are hard places to live these are not easy places to live it's not easy to move around the place it's not easy to get to shops and services these are isolated pockets within our cities often young couples who maybe have one car so when the when the the male might be the primary breadwinner leaves the my experience working in Davron Park which is actually the socially most socially disadvantaged suburb in Australia uh, was seeing those 16 to 20 20 year old girls pushing prams in 45 degree heat to a bus stop that's a long long way away from where they live so they can get somewhere but it's a really big challenge and so there is a lot of isolation there is a lot of loneliness and so this you know you talked about social capital and kindness capital uh, and I thought maybe it's a, a female share economy. Maybe it's a female share economy, and unfortunately, and they're not telling us. <laughs> not, no, we're not letting on. Yes, because it. Well, in your experience in Adelaide and mine here in Brisbane, these these areas are underpinned by social disadvantage. They're stigmatised. They're othered. They're not desirable places. And so, if you've ended up here, there is a there's a certain shame attached to being part of these places. And I think that women have turned that on their on its head from their lived experience of being in these places through their kindness and reaching out to other women mm. generally to assist them and and the key issue is around mobility getting around as you as you what you just described is exactly my experience in both of those communities seeing women young women pushing prams in 45 degree heat on the road to get to a, a bus stop where there's no shelter to wait for a bus that may or may not come so Laurel it was lovely to see you and thanks so much for coming in to talk to us and um, I just before we finish uh, is there anything else uh, final comments you'd like to leave us with Okay, so um, I guess I'd love to give a tip to other planners out there. So as you know, I, I educate young planners and who I adore and I adore working with them and I think that young people are so full of hope and promise that we're in safe hands. But there is a dominating kind of view and voice in town planning in our profession that preferences certain geographies within our city and those geographies may not even need big planned intervention like the inner city areas the inner five kilometers of our city areas the private sector might just be able to take care of that um, with some with some guidance and, and obviously a framework of, of planning it's planning interventions that are needed in other geographic locations those geographically disadvantaged locations I think that's where our profession our city, our city shapers and designers can really come to our fore and really think around making just cities yeah, you really hit on the head. One of my, you know, wonderful things that I like to talk about all the time is the concept of fair cities because as a society now we're more unequal than we've been any time since the Great Depression and that's most of the Western world. What people miss is that we are manifesting this geographically 
and that has fundamental kind of impacts on how our cities function socially and economically. Absolutely. And so as we speak of cities, I would love to speak to the planners and designers and architects and all of our wonderful built environment ancillary professionals as well to just pay attention to the justice in the city. Pay attention to creating just cities, not just parts of cities, justice throughout our cities. Thanks so much, Laurel. I, I always admire your zeal and, and you know enthusiasm for everything you do. So thanks, for, thanks again. Thanks, Greg. And thanks, Stephen. I'd like to introduce Kirsty Kelly, who is the former Chief Executive Officer of the Planning Institute of Australia and is now working for not-for-profit boards and membership as a consultant doing some great work uh, across Queensland and at least. But um, hi, Kirsty. Hi, for Stephen. How are you going? Good. And Greg. Kirsty, we're really on this journey to understand what it means to be a woman and not only in cities, but also a woman dealing with cities and planning. And uh, I know you were the, the CEO of the Planning Institute of Australia and, and you did some work around women and the profession so what what did you learn from that journey around how women are becoming planners and then we want to explore what that means yeah so the work's a couple of years old now um, but it really was that around now we have about 50 50 um, women and men in young planners are coming through universities and the study really found that as they got older there were less. Um, Some of that was naturally because back in the day there were less women studying planning but what we also found was looking through that there was a sort of a bubble in the middle where um, quite a lot of women were leaving the profession um, and not coming back or coming back part-time and it was part of what was really interesting with that was seeing the young planners who had been stars in the day, so people who'd uh, won awards and things were recognised for their efforts, were not actually returning to the profession after having children or um, perhaps were not moving into the higher level careers that we thought that they might and that they'd, they'd moved off into other things and weren't uh, as focused on planning as we thought they would be. Just from memory, were you awarded a Young Planning Award? In South Australia, but not national. Oh, okay. Well, you did well. Nice work. So you're an example of a female young planner who got engrossed in the profession, but then has also moved out of the profession to move on to different things as well. Yeah. And look, I think, I mean, that happens with planning in general, because as a planner, you have a lot of generalist skills. So you do move off into other fields. It's quite, there are a lot of specifics in planning qualifications. You actually gather a whole lot of general skills along the way, and lots of planners move into management roles and leadership roles. So um, a lot of women have done that as well, but also I think it, you know, it's been somewhat challenging I think for others that are moving into um, having families and a lot of workplaces still aren't as accommodating of uh, men being more involved in raising children and so often the women are taking a a role where they are um, stepping away from work. And, and Kirsty, in, in, in that process of the journey that you've gone through from being CEO of the Planning Institute to where you are in your life and career now, you've been through quite an interesting journey, um, part of which has been influenced by the city uh, yes. as to where you are now. So talk us through that. Yeah, so um, I relocated to Brisbane um, and found that when I was then looking to see what would happen next in my career, whether I'd be um, working in another CEO role or something along those lines, um, found that uh, despite living really quite close to the city, um, for my partner and I to both work full-time would mean that we would struggle to actually make it home to pick up children from after-school care. Um, and we tried that a few times and found that it actually didn't work and it didn't didn't work for us both to be having those sorts of roles. And so I then made the choice to not work full time and to pursue my own consulting career, which is what I'm what I'm doing. And that's given me great flexibility and being able to actually balance family and work 
um, and trying some different things. So that's meant I've been exploring my own neighbourhood um, and connecting with other women who are doing the same sorts of things. So I've found in, in my suburb there are actually plenty of other women who started their own businesses, working part-time from home from the company they might have been working with, but, but lots starting their own businesses in various ways. And, but this is a place in Brisbane which is no, by no means out of suburb, like it's in a suburb. It was only a few kilometres from the city right next to a train station where you lived. And so it wasn't as though there was a paucity of transport options, It just, but yet still the city didn't work for you to have those career paths that you might have wanted to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a, it's a 13-minute train ride from the station to the, the CBD, but by the time you add in walking at either end, um, it doesn't make it very easy to get back for an after-school care pick-up at 6 o'clock. So a lot of our structures and institutions don't actually work that well for working people in that way. This this is one that you can speak from the heart, and I would really appreciate you being honest. And I think the whole point of the question for me is a curiosity around what does this mean for cities? And so we're, we're discovering that couples with children, so not just women, but couples with children or single parents, a lot of time are women, um, are struggling with this moving around the city, transport, access, timelines, work, employment, disadvantage. And then that's in a suburb, but also in the outer suburb, it's even worse. Then we've got this conversation around women in the planning profession, and we're seeing this incredible drop-off. And let's face it, the more senior you become as a planner, the more power and decisions you have. So whilst the number of women might be falling in the profession as they get older, the power of men is increasing exponentially as they get older because because they're the ones with the decision-making frameworks and opportunities. So what do you think this means for women in experiencing cities? This is not a question I dare answer, but I'd, you can say what you want because we want to know what you think about the importance of the implications for women and cities. Yeah, look, I mean, there are plenty of things that you learn at uni and through experience around how things should be planned. But when it comes down to it, it's also around how people, different people experience different parts of the city and we all bring different things to it. So if we end up with the same sorts of people doing planning, they're missing out on the experiences of a whole range of other people. So, you know, we often talk about that when it comes to, you know, community engagement and getting all the different views and perceptions. But if, you know, the people who are making decisions on cities all come from, you know, one perspective, they're missing out on the other half of the population, let alone a whole range of other diversity issues. So um, I think that's, you know, that's one one part of it. And, and, you know, often you'll go to sort of gatherings of people and they just haven't had that same experience. They're not the ones rushing back to try and pick up kids from after school or, you know, those kinds of issues. It's just not, doesn't occur to them. And it's not that they don't think those things are important. It's just that they've never experienced it because they've had someone else do it for them. So they haven't they haven't been rushing back to pick up kids from school or after school care or be juggling around school sports and all those kind of things. And so a lot of this isn't just about cities, it's around employment and business, a whole range of structures that challenge that. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that old sort of saying, I don't know who said it first, but uh, when you're used to a life of uh, privilege, even equality feels like oppression, you know, and it's, uh, but if you, if you don't know what it's like, then how can you possibly understand it for the people who are experiencing those pressures that the city's putting upon them? I wanted to pursue one other aspect. You mentioned when you decided to do your own business and operate from home and give you that flexibility that you actually discovered a, a kind of network of people in your local area, women doing the same thing. So um, we heard from Laurel Johnson, one of the things that she learnt was that women in 
in some of the more isolated areas, edge of the city that she was looking at, were actually creating their own networks, which were actually the uh, building kindness capital. They were actually creating things that were actually sustaining them and their communities in the absence of you know government doing some of the things that you might expect them to do. Is, is there something in that? Yeah, absolutely. And look, that, I think that's what's happened in my case as well. So it's been a mix of catching up with other women who are working in their own businesses just to, to share and, and network that and, and just have to, someone to catch up for with for a coffee because when you're working on your own, it um, sometimes gets a bit lonely. But also in terms of that sharing duties of, you know, picking other kids up from school and, you know, if you've got something at night, someone looking after kids for you, those kinds of things, that that's definitely happened for me as well. And, it, you know, it's certainly been a contrast to my previous life, but it makes your experience at the city much different, I think. And I guess for me, it's actually, I've you know, had a change of pace in my career and life and I'm out walking more and moving around in the suburb and seeing things a lot more than you do when you're perhaps focusing at a higher level and, and moving around between places from meeting to meeting. It's just a slower pace and you see a lot more. Thanks for your time, Kirsty. We really appreciate it and you've, I think you've taught us something. Thank you. Our next guest on uh, City Speak today is another friend uh, and, and colleague in the profession, Wendy Evans, who, apart from also her day job of being a partner at AJ and Co Lawyers, is uh, the current president of the Planning Institute of Australia in Queensland. Welcome, Wendy. Oh, thank you. Um, let's just jump straight into it. Why are you a planner and a lawyer? And, you know, why are you the Planning Institute president? Well, um, I was a planner first and I was a planner because I truly and utterly believe in great cities. I really do. And it's actually still something that drives me in my business now. So I actually realised the other day that it's not actually the law that gets me up in the morning. It's good outcomes and I deliver that through the law. So I'm still actually a planner by trade as opposed to a lawyer, but I deliver it through the law. My first job out of, well, I was still at university, was at Delphin before it was Delphin Lend Lease, and it was on the Forest Lake Project, so a big master plan community. I truly and I still believe that Delphin had the right formula for creating satellite communities you know they we had a project team and on the project team there was um, town planners there were engineers there were designers there were CAD guys there were marketing people there were community people um, there were sales people there were leasing people and we also obviously had the project manager and before we did subdivisions we'd literally walk around the, the, the block and hug the trees that we wanted to keep. We looked at the solar orientation. We looked at where the storm flow would be. We looked at all of those things. And I believed in what we were creating to the point where I went, hmm, do you know, I'm not sure if this planning thing is going to actually cut the mustard for me because to the point of having an argument about whether or not something's good or not in the courts, I was only going to be able to be an impartial witness which I've been twice and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But actually, I get really passionate about good outcomes. And I knew that I wanted to be the person that would stand in front of a judge and go, but Your Honour, this has to be approved and these are the reasons why. So that's when I realised I had to become a lawyer. So I became a lawyer because I knew that the planning wasn't going to give me the skill set to stand as an advocate in the face of the courts, which is 
where I saw the ultimate argument happening. So it wasn't so much a career change as a career enhancement, a better way of achieving what you 100%. were really trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want and to be a lawyer. And by the way, Delford came out of some little place down in the south of Australia there somewhere, Adelaide or something, is yeah. what's it called, something like that? Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. And I know you've, it's, you're in your first year as president at the Planning Institute in Queensland, so tell us about that. I've been there, as you know, back in the Middle Ages, and uh, there's a lot to do there, and there's a lot of pressures and a lot of lot of in- competing interests, you know. So, if you could start with telling us what the Planning Institute is and, oh, and what yeah. it does, yeah. and then and then what your agenda is, that would yeah. be great. Okay, so PIA, Planning Institute of Australia, formerly RAPI, Royal Australian Planning Institute, is effectively the body representing town planners across Australia, and hopefully messaging what planners do to the community and standing behind good planning for better outcomes in moving forward. So I used to be a member of RAPI when I was at university and in my early days as a planner. I then sort of lost a bit of faith, I guess, during some years of um, peer and in recent times have... That was, that was well after I'd finished well as president. Well after yeah, you finished, right. just absolutely. To make that clear, you know, just in case my colleague here was sort of lining me <laughs> no, up again. You know, no, no, you know. no, 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 well after. <laughs> but there were some dark days and um, I think for me there were a lot of changes to the presidency and a lot of a lot of things that I just didn't see the worth in being a member of PEER for a long time. And it might have been also because I was a lawyer at the time, so it wasn't something that was necessarily on my radar completely. But I got to a point where I just went, you know what, There's, I see so much of the wrong thing happening by planners in the development world. And I truly believe that what planners do is amazing and it needs to be properly supported and I see the pointy end of things where they've gone wrong and I can usually pinpoint pretty quickly where they've gone wrong and why and there's a consistent theme that runs with that and I truly and utterly believed that someone needed to stand up and have a voice for planners in the face of political interference largely and whilst there's absolutely a structure that needs to be understood and respected and councils have prerogatives to make certain decisions in certain constitutions there is to be a separation between the job well done by technical experts in administering um, development assessment and a space then for political operative. If I was to say, summarise that, you wanted to be frank and fearless, didn't you? I don't know. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. Oh, that's a very shy way of yeah, saying yes. Is, yeah. But uh, uh, great. And so what sort of things do you think a peak body for a profession that's focusing on cities needs to focus on? What are the priorities for a peak body that is encouraging professionals to encourage communities to think about cities? Well, number one is I think the, the the first challenge that I see is we have, especially in Queensland, which I can really very clearly speak to, we, we actually have some really great support mechanisms sitting there in the way that we are encouraged to do performance-based planning, which gives a practitioner an element of professional creativity and competence there, but in the context of a structured system that makes a lot of sense. And it's been tried and tested and there's always going to be some issues, but we have a lot of support there. But what we don't have is a lot of people that are willing to stand in that space and absolutely rock it. And I I want planners to rock what they do. And because they're amazing. Like, when I started at AJ & Co, 
none of my partners there knew what the hell planning law was. They knew it was important and they knew that I was a little bit different, but they didn't understand what it was. So in my first few weeks, I did a CLE on Wendy's Wonderful World of Planning and I did it in our boardroom and we're in Waterfront Place and I got them to look out the window and I said, do you see everything there? Everything there. There's buildings and houses and there's trees and there's bridges and there's roads and there's waterways and there's parks. You see all that? Yes, yes, yes. Right, well, that's, that's what I do. That's actually planning. Yeah, I sometimes say, how the fuck do you think that got there in the first place? <laughs> yeah, it's true though. It's like that peer video, you know, what is planning? I think that's tremendous. I want the whole world to see that because, in fact, people don't understand that that's what town planning is. It's yeah. absolutely everything that connects the dots for us to be able to live, work and play. Yeah, one, I, one of the reasons I think we're keen to do this and, and sort of to actually help people love their city is, is, is that people mostly, like I think the statistics show, it's about one in three people actually know that their city has a plan, you know, in a lot of places. I think the general view is that cities just happen. Nobody's getting ahead of the game, so it's nobody's thinking about this, where in fact that's what a lot of people do for a living. So I think that, that getting people to understand that there is a plan and that they can actually influence that plan and have a say in that plan is, is really part of what, what we're about. So if people know what better cities look like, then we want them to stand up and influence that. 100%. Speaking of which, what does a good city look like to you? What does a good city look like? To me, it's more about what it feels like. Like, what does, how does it feel? Because some cities can look amazing but feel like rubbish, if that makes sense. So, for me, a good city feels like a place where I feel safe to walk around at night time. It feels like somewhere where people want to be and are happy to be and then they're not just passing through it has a homely feeling like it's a safe and happy comforting feeling so I guess for me personally some elements of cities that I really enjoy you can't shy away from the majestic beauty of natural features so for example I love going to Sydney because I think the harbour is just phenomenal it's it's an amazing centrepiece it really is it's just beautiful and the way their public transport system works is is actually really quite good um, in comparison to some other cities like for example in Brisbane ours is still struggling and catching up and trying to understand its identity and how it's going to cater for the future but in Sydney you've got that majestic piece of infrastructure sitting there that's just natural and everything's kind of centered around it but then you go out of the city and it's just like any other city and I think that that can feel a little bit isolating and sad and a little bit dismal and and hot. It feels hot because there's a lot of concrete. Whereas in Brisbane, when you go out of the city or even when you're in the city, we have a lot of green and that feels nice, especially in our climate. You know, there's, there's trees all the way through the, the middle of the mall. They're well-established trees and they, they had a beautiful backdrop to what we achieved there, even though it's literally all concrete and glass. It's a really interesting observation that your answer to say it's not what they look like, it's what they feel like. And I think most people experience cities through all of their senses, not just, you know, what they see. Then you know, you go to Indian cities and noise and, and the, the odours that you experience are just different to anywhere else. And the, and the cow, yeah, India yeah. cities have got billions of smells, some of which are really nice. <laughs> So, but you know, it's, they, they're confronting because of the other sensory experiences. It'd be interesting to say to people, well, how do you feel about your city? What do you like, or what, do you, what does it look like? Is it, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel excited? Do you feel at home there? Mm. 
it's been an interesting way for to actually get people to talk about their cities. Mm. And and I often talk about it's not the built form, but it's the operating system that's going to change in the future. And uh, I think people, um, architects draw pictures of future cities when they've got no work on, um, but it's actually the fundamental operating system and how transactions are going to happen, etc. But let's not go into that. I wanted to uh, talk about Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So I really, as the president of the Queensland Planning Institute of Australia, I'd love you to sort of articulate maybe your perspective on the changes that have been happening in Brisbane maybe over the last 10 to 20 years and also where you see it going. What are, what are some of the, the things that Brisbane is doing really well and what are some of the things that you think Brisbane needs to sort of pick up that other cities around the world are doing? I think, and this is probably not just as me as peer state president but also just as a practitioner generally, I think that the things that Brisbane have done really well have been the greening part. It's the greening piece that has really gone ahead leaps and bounds to the point where I was at a housing strategy um, meeting the other day for Brisbane. And it was interesting because we're all talking about what are the things we want to see in our city as we move forward. And one of the things that wasn't really put on until right at the end was green space. And I think that that's actually a reflection of the fact that we're now really comfortable, that we've got a lot of green space. We've got an urban footprint and then we've got a peripheral to that and we've got a form and function of green. And in fact, when you look out of your window to demonstrate to the world how amazing planning is, especially over Jacaranda time, the city's riddled with green and purple in those instances. And that's something that I think we've done really well. I think that we've made a concerted effort to capture character and heritage. I think that probably we don't we don't have the depth of heritage that's very obvious to the average Joe Blow that the likes of Sydney and Melbourne do. I think those cities do a tremendous job of preserving that because that speaks to the city and to the character and it adds a a particular value that you can't put a price on. I think Brisbane, we've done that quite well given what we've got. I think the things that we need to really get ahead on are forward thinking and understanding what's coming before it hits to instead of being a reactionary state is to be we need to plan and that's one of the pieces for me as a as a planning lawyer I've been frustrated by over the last few years it seems that we react to a lot of things that we really should have seen coming and perhaps haven't been on the front front foot with that so things like I don't know how you describe them but the scooters the electric scooters and the, the way of sort of getting around the space even uber for example like that's that's changed the way our cities function and like it or loathe it we are going to have some level of autonomous vehicle and electric vehicle coming through now how how is that going to make us look some people just don't want to know about it think it's a pie in the sky dream and want to shove their head in the sand but in fact it's already here i was speaking to the volvo dealers the other day and they gave me this car to drive around in which i didn't want to like but i did the way they were describing it i sort of went but what are you saying like this strikes me as being automated what are you saying I, i just touch the steering wheel every three minutes to keep it actioned and they said all of our cars now the 2020 plates are all able to be flicked to autonomous mode it's just that it depends on where it's lawful what the hell this is here yeah so that sort of stuff i think transport and orientation are where we need to be there'll be another podcast uh, about the whole transport thing and and you know the impacts of those things on cities and it really is fundamentally that the thing is it's coming We've got to think about it before it gets here. We've got to actually get ahead of the game. There's a lot going on in Brisbane right now and planned. So we're getting a new second runway in the airport. Um, we're getting a new cruise terminal. We've got Cross River Rail, massive investment in, in our railway system. 
Brisbane Metro, Queen's Wharf, like major stuff. You know, how do you see the city in, say, five or ten years' time? It's going to be amazing. And I already think that people can feel that anyway because we've got so much interstate and international growth happening in Brisbane, Queensland generally, but in Brisbane. We're thinking ahead when it comes to those major pieces of infrastructure. And just to go back onto the transport, that's the part that needs to be ensured that we've secured that to make all of these things work because for so long Brisbane's been that thing that's been bypassed in favour of a quick trip down to the Gold Coast and you know we've got so much to offer here Queen's Wharf is going to be absolutely just stand out it's tell us a little bit about Queen's Wharf Queen's Wharf is effectively up on George Street if you like it's between George Street and the Brisbane River so it will face South Bank which is in the city centre and where the old expo site was and it's basically a reclamation of all of the public space down by the river which is going to be a fantastic it's going to be a lot of new build that will be largely commercial with a bit of retail, with a bit of, I think there's hotels going in there, restaurants and all. It's going to be activation of all of those things. And I think it's, is it two or three towers? Two or three significant towers? I think at least three, yeah. And the design's just, it blows your mind to think that Brisbane's ready for this, but it absolutely is. I think it's world class. When you add that to potentially what Dexas is doing down on the other part of the river on the other side, add to that the Howard Smith Wharves, which have already gone ahead, we've just got some standout features sitting right there, which means that people can get back to loving the city, but also rocking it out on the weekend on the riverfront. You know, it's just, ah. Yeah, I think it's going to be an amazing place to live and it's not very far away too. Brisbane has really dramatically changed over the last five to ten years, certainly in my time of coming and visiting the last 20 years. What is Brisbane not doing, as well as the transport and the, the long-term planning? What, what, what's Is there something that other cities, you've seen other cities doing that you want to happen in Brisbane? Is there a missing link? I don't think many cities do it well, but I think that we have the opportunity in Brisbane to get this right, and I think that's the connectivity. I I think that irrespective of where you are in a city, you should feel like you're in a place and not just a space. And I think that Brisbane is growing up very quickly. We're deliberately growing in certain spaces and places. There's a lot of deliberate efforts being made in those those spaces and places and I think that if we get those elements right every person in the city should feel like they belong and I think that that means access to all sorts of facilities but access to people and the creation of spaces that you want to be in and I think that that has a lot to do with mental health and well-being as well which is going to be a major issue as we move forward and if we can really engage on every level with human human beings in in our city of Brisbane then we will absolutely have nailed it. One of the great characteristics of Brisbane is its climate you know we're a subtropical climate we're sitting here in winter and it's 20 something degrees outside blue skies and and it's a city where you can actually sit outside every day of the year sure you might want a bit of shade and you know for a bit of the summer but so that helps define us too doesn't it? Absolutely it's it's something that we we can have for free and if we have these places and spaces that are designed so that we feel like we want to be there 
the, the climate's the part that just it, it speaks for itself. Yeah, you know, I think I think Brisbane is moving towards a step change sort of in its evolution, and it does still suffer from a bit of a cultural cringe in its own right. It never sort of it's built over many decades now a bit more confidence in itself, but it's still you know people in Brisbane they kind of it's, oh it's Brizzy you know and it's not Sydney and it's but I think you can see that changing now. And your comments about how people relate to the city and them feeling part of the city is a crucial mm-hmm. thing for the future. Well, I've spent a lot of time over the last six to 12 months in Sydney with a lot of people who are of my age group who are professionals in Sydney. And all of them are looking to move up here and live here or have already invested here to live. A, because it's more affordable. B, it's because we have an amazing lifestyle. C, we are comparable in terms of the climate, really, to Sydney, but we don't have the horrible humidity that they do because we're not as close to the to the to the ocean during summer. So, in fact, our humidity is not as bad as theirs. There are opportunities here which are very hard to come by now in Sydney. The only thing that's missing from Brisbane that what Sydney has is actually the harbour. That is the part that's that you just can't bring it up here and recreate it. But I think now there's this paradigm shift and people are realising that they're not actually going to be able to afford their lifestyle in Sydney. And the most comparable and affordable variation is Brisbane which is why we have such a great opportunity to create something amazing here as we grow. Yeah and then, you know we, we haven't got the harbour but there's, the river is actually one of Brisbane's defining features and, and because it, it's a big river and it meanders it pops up suddenly all over the place and yes sure it does bite us every so often we do get flooded but it really is all of these big projects that we have been talking about are actually happening along the river. Yes and we're we're being brought back to the side of the river and it's for everyone it's not just for the people who can afford it and that's that's I think pretty special. Wendy one of the problems um, that Greg has and myself is that we're we're pale, stale male men in our 60s. Oh, no, that's you. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we really want to make sure that, you know, when we talk about cities, we're talking about cities for everyone. Building cities isn't about you. It's not about Greg. It's not about me. It's not about the listeners. It's about everyone and how they work together and how the whole thing comes together as a piece. And one of the really important uh, elements to that is understanding how cities are important for old people, young people, uh, men, women. I noticed you're a woman. So I'm really interested in just some thoughts, and as a president of Queensland Pair, just some thoughts from you on what it means to be a woman in a city and what a city means to a woman and what are some of the challenges you think you face? Or I'd almost have to admit I don't know what question to ask because I'm just a mere male. (laughs) We had the Women in Planning Awards earlier this year and it was Jude Munro that came and did a presentation for us there and she has certain views as a past CEO for a long period of time with the Brisbane City Council around planning and um, one of the things that she said actually resonated with me and that was that if you plan a city for women you plan it for everyone. I've really thought about that and there's a lot of there's actually a lot to that I mean obviously there's a few little subtle nuances sitting off to the sides with various different requirements but I've experienced a lot of this recently because I walk around 
around cities a lot and I walk I've walked this year around Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne and Perth as a as a single female. And I have experienced spaces within all of those cities where I've categorically clocked during daylight hours that I would not walk there alone at night time. And I think that that's still something that is a massive impediment, but at the same time I'm not necessarily convinced that all spaces will ever be places that you'll feel like you can walk at night times. I just I just don't know if even the most concentrated effort of planning could ever overcome some of those perceptions and safety issues that as a woman I experience that I know categorically that a male walking side by side with me would never have even registered just wouldn't occur to them I walked home with my partner across a one of the big parks in Melbourne late one night and we were having this discussion and he he had said oh it would never have occurred to him not to have walked through this park whereas I said I would never have walked through this park had it not been for the fact that you're standing next to me it just it would never occur to me to walk through the park so it's completely an opposite way of looking at it so I think that there are a lot of issues around safety and perception that as a female I will experience that a lot of a lot of other people won't Um, but as I said I'm not necessarily optimistic that there's a planning way around shaking that scary stuff out of every nook and cranny in the city. Nonetheless you know the the aspiration of taking the perspective of people who do feel more vulnerable because of their gender or age or whatever and applying that as something one of the metrics you want your city to be better at is a good thing I think oh yeah like I think we still have to try but I think a lot of this stuff also goes into much more of the it's a social thing as well as a a planned thing I I did hear Jude Munro speak and you know she was fantastic and I remember her saying that and you've heard the 8 to 80 city you know so you know if it's good for young people and old people it's good for everyone too so just nice ways of saying that cities need to be inclusive and cities need to be designed for all of its participants all of the people who live there um, so I, I think that's that's a great perspective it's safety I think is always one of the issues that comes up for the more vulnerable you know members of our cities so props to you for that I think in in positive news, Brisbane used to be seen as the city and there was always that catch cry, last one out, switch the lights off. We are not that anymore. And it, like Howard Wars is a classic example. You can you can run all the way along the river now and not feel isolated. But that Howard Smith Wharves precinct for so long was one of those parts where you just wanted to actually get your skates on and get through quickly. And it's activated now and people are there all the time. Mm. I think it's interesting, this whole commentary about- about um, the ego of cities and the confidence of the community is a really interesting conversation to have. And 20 or 30 years ago, I think Melbourne would have had that issue from Sydney, but now maybe Sydney might have it from Melbourne. I don't know. That's a debate that we can have another time. But then, of course, Perth, Adelaide and Brisbane have all been having that exact conversation about when are we going to grow up? It's that whole. And interestingly enough, though, um, what I think is really exciting about cities in Australia is that all the cities are maturing now. You know, I I don't think there's a large city in Australia or or a boutique city in Australia that isn't really starting to shine. And I'd almost go as far as to say, though, that there's there's probably probably about two or three hundred small, medium sized cities in the world that are all having these conversations around. We're not a New York or we're not a Melbourne or we're not a Tokyo or whatever it is. But I think 
they're all starting to understand that there's still an opportunity and a space to shine. And I think that's a, a conversation around cities that I've seen changed over the last 20 years. Hmm. And it's about having your own identity and being really proud of that. I know that for so long, and I sometimes do speculate as well, with Melbourne and Sydney, they do still tend to sort of have a bit of a boxing match go on. And Brisbane's kind of the the other one on the eastern seaboard that's kind of gone, bugger it, we're going to do our own thing. And I feel like Brisbane really has. Now, the only downside of that, of course, is that we've got the Gold Coast sitting an hour down, down south, and they've got their own identity, always have had their own identity, but sadly there's a lot of separation between Brisbane and the Gold Coast which I sometimes think is perhaps something for the future for us to look at but I don't know I think Brisbane's really embraced the fact that it's it's on its own and it's like let's just rock this out we can be a world city. Why is it sad that Gold Coast and Brisbane have their own identity. I'm not disagreeing with you. Just want to flesh that out. I just think that there's an opportunity there. Uh, Well, I think I'm always a big believer that if we can just bring it in and have a group cuddle, it's so much better. And rather than thinking of ourselves as geographically separate and distinct, historically there's been so many international people that have come straight into the Brisbane airport and gone straight back out to the Gold Coast. And you sort of go, dude, seriously, like, what are we doing here that's wrong? And how can we not collaborate to leverage off each other's greatness, you know? And that's That's the part that I think, as cities, why would we need to compete? Let's work together. The only other thing, you talked about safety uh, for women. Um, I'd just be interested if you have um, any other examples that you could sort of, or anything Jude said or anything that you've processed. Uh, You know, safety is a critical one. What maybe one other example uh, in terms of gender and cities. Have you got anything particular? It's almost exclusively for me the safety part because for me, even thinking about it in my own suburb, we have bike paths going through our neighbourhood and they're not well lit at night time. There is no way on God's earth I'm going for a run out there. So I will get in my car and drive down to the Wynnum Bushall and go for a run down there and still won't do that at certain times of the night because nobody there. So um, it's definitely safety. Is there anything else in terms of technology, cities, future cities, um, healthy cities? Is there anything you... I think design's a big one. I think design, as I said before, it's about the feeling of a place more than what it looks like. But at the same time, absolutely how you feel about something is going to be impacted on by good or bad design. Australian cities are improving with design. There's always room for improvement. But I think one of the big things is that um, nobody should be afraid or stymied from creating creating amazing places just because they might not tick the boxes. I think that sometimes in in government there can be a little bit of scepticism about like how does that work but if someone's prepared to put themselves in there and go let's let's create something just startling I don't know I think design is critical and the healthy cities one is an interesting one we ran a seminar a little while ago on mental health and well-being and planning for that and I think that is really something that's going to become more and more critical as we move forward and it's not just about obesity and mental wellness it's about the connection piece and that's making everyone feel like they've got a place to be and a space that they can be comfortable and 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 happy and that that's going to be something that needs to come into all of design and placemaking as well that's great Uh, wendy thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today and um that's been wonderful thanks so much thank you